0: Dr. John Deloney is a number one national best-selling author, mental health and wellness expert and host of the Dr. John
1: Deloney Show. I've done a thousand interviews. No one's ever asked that question. And I think that may be one of the most insightful questions uh, I've ever been asked. John spent two decades
0: working as a senior leader at multiple universities, a professor and researcher and crisis responder. Now as a Ramsey personality, he teaches people how to reclaim their lives from the
1: madness of the modern world. He started crying and I was like, oh no, did I make this real weird? And he said something that was, it was a shapeshifter statement, but he said, dude, nobody's ever asked me that before. And I thought, holy smokes, is that where we are? When I started getting friendships and that was the currency in the bank. That was the concrete and the foundation that gave me the courage and the strength and the bravery to then go sit with somebody and say, I'm not okay.
0: This podcast is here to offer you the tools and strategies that you need to level up your life as a man in today's world. The doctor is in the house. How are you, John? What's
1: up, Gavin? How are we doing?
0: Um, buzzing. Delighted to have you here, man. I've, I've just finished a book and uh, unbelievable stuff. Thank you so much for writing it. Uh, thank you. Taking I, a- I
1: didn't know anybody other than my mom read it, man. So thank you so much. <laughs> <I> mean, that <laughs> nah. means the world.
0: Yeah, there's a lot of people need need to get their hands on it. I, I do love how you've taken a lot of complex scenarios and broken it down into simplistic terms that people can actually implement in their lives. So and uh, yeah, so thank you. We will get into the into the details of the book, I'm sure, as we go through the episode, but one thing we were speaking about before we started recording was change. And it's it's something that I felt was the underlying current beneath the book is the resistance to change and I've had several conversations with guys in this podcast over the last few weeks and many of them, and perhaps even myself, have come to the conclusion. I don't know if this conclusion is accurate, that many men or perhaps all men need to hit rock bottom in their lives before they actually make a change in their life. And I'm curious as to what your thoughts and ideas are around that. Like is, is it completely necessary to lose everything before you start to, create something new in your life or can this be avoided somewhat because there is a huge resistance to change for many many people and i'm i'm curious as to what your thoughts are around that can can it can it be avoided does it have to get that bad before we create something better in our lives
1: i was i was telling you uh before we started i've gosh i don't know i've done a thousand interviews no one's ever asked that question, and I think that may be one of the most insightful questions uh, I've ever been asked. Um, I remember I was at a program at Harvard like in 2012, 2013, and you like how I did that? That was like such a lo-fi flex there. Sorry, man. Um, that was, it was in a room with just the smartest people on the planet. and They were just parading brilliant person after brilliant person after brilliant person. And this is a decade ago that I was there. And one of the few things I remember uh, was an expert in adult development came in. And I'll get the stat wrong, but I remember being taken aback to the point that I, I fell into despair for a season on this one turn. The, the researcher, she came in and she said that when studying adult behavior, when faced with a terminal outcome of a behavior change, if you don't stop X, you will die. Only two out of seven men would change their behavior. The other five were like, "eh, that's cool. Or not me. And then they end up dying, right? And I remember thinking, well, how in the world is the world supposed to change if if that's the ethos, right? So backing out of your question, I believe I wouldn't do what I'm doing. I believe with all my heart, um, and I think the data is slowly starting to back it up, absolutely you can avoid rock bottom. Um, the key for me has become learning that our brains are designed for homeostasis. It's designed for balance, and balance is what was and what is familiar. And they're, you know, you've heard it the brain is a prediction machine, right? And so throughout your life, it puts little GPS pins in these moments and it watches how dad responded, or it watches how mom responded, or it watches how the politician or the athlete that we follow responded. And that just gives us a blueprint for what we do next. And the sooner we can realize that the things that kept us alive as kids, that, that infrastructure is what destroys our marriages and what destroys our working relationships as adults, the sooner we can, can, can recognize that, then we can, ha- we can go to war, literally, against our brains and begin to change that in, w- while we're moving forward. Otherwise, you end up in ash, like you mentioned. And we love to tell the stories of those who um, hit rock bottom and came back. My career has been spent with people who hit rock bottom and didn't make it back out. And many, 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 I would be willing to bet, I don't have any data, but I bet many more hit rock bottom and never come out than those who hit rock bottom and turn into Steve Jobs or whatever the thing is, right? And so the the sexy story is the rock bottom and coming back. I think most of us need to see our lives change over time. And our values and our beliefs change over time. And the things that we need. I just was with Lane Norton recently. The, the number one is a weightlifting number one protein gone on planet Earth. He man, we got to arguing about. I learned a whole bunch of new stuff about diet. And I've been doing this for 20-something years, right? And I relish being wrong. I got to learn something new. It's an attitude and an ethos that I have. And now I can change my behavior. And already the weight's fallen off me in a way that's super annoying because I've been trying to get it off. Or so anyway, yes, you can, but you have to decide I'm going to fight my body's insistence on keeping things the way they've always been. It's not against the external factors. That's not where the fight is. Man. The fight's internal. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, something you wrote about in the book was replacing your thoughts, replacing a negative thought or a thought that's associated with an experience in the past was something that's perhaps more positive that'll serve your growth going forward. And when you spoke about that, or when you wrote about it, I was listening to your book, so when you spoke about it, I wondered, is that a suppression of thoughts or what is the difference between reframing your thoughts into something positive in order to move forward? and allowing that thought to come up and to feel and to experience the pain that's associated with it perhaps before you move on so uh, at that point of the book you were you were you were looking to make a change or how to make change or how to take this these experiences in the past and create something better in the future and replacing your thoughts was was one thing you spoke about so I'm, I'm curious in terms of so it sounds
1: like there's a conflation of ideas there so The Alfred, I think it was Alfred Adler, one of those ancient psychologists, um, one of the fathers of psychology, said that I thought that I could take away my client's anxiety and depression and make them well. And I realized I took away their anxiety and depression and I made them empty. We had to backfill the space that anxiety and depression held with joy and optimism and action that led towards a well-meaning, the life and purpose that they were looking for. And so – there's a, there is an important part of grieving hard things and owning and acknowledging reality. This is where we are. There is also an addiction that we have in our culture, especially, but um, internally, it's a biochemical addiction to negativity. Our brain wants to replay and cast out and rehearse the worst things that could possibly happen to keep us from experiencing those things again. So the, the easy example is you lose a child, the worst thing a parent can imagine. You lose a child. Man, that lightning bolt of thought, remembering that kid in the casket, remembering your reimagined version of the car wreck, your version of, the, uh, of the, the cancer experience, going to the hospital, going to the hospital, going to the hospital. That is simply your brain on a loop, reminding you what could happen and making sure it doesn't happen again. Because it's only got one loop system and it wants to, it's the same loop system that 400 years ago remind one to remind you there are tigers out here and they might eat There are tigers out here be careful where you're walking right well that loop doesn't serve us well in our modern world and so by when that lightning bolt hits us i have a choice and it's a hard choice am i going to meditate on that picture of my son in the casket am i going to meditate on my on that on that text that my wife sends me and says i'm leaving you am i going to Meditate on the abuse. Meditate that some, on somebody treating me differently because of the color of my skin for some stupid reason. Am I going to meditate on that or am I going to have another thought ready to go? So we teach parents who've lost kids, have a memory of your kid on the big wheel when they're laughing so hard, their guts hurt. Have a, a picture in your head of your kid with birthday cake all over their face. And The moment that lightning bolt hits, stop the meditation on the negativity and choose to go to the positive choose to go to the optimistic to the joy and in short order your brain will reset its default setting to land on beauty not on ash right so those are two different tracks there but i do i love your question because it asks is it smart just to wallpaper over and blow by stuff no you got to grieve it once you've grieved it and there's a period at the end of that sentence then you have to be about changing those thoughts moving forward otherwise your body's going to spin up every time to defend you that's what it does
0: when do you know it's time to when Know that the grief is over or you're finished, and when and, and when you're ready to move on to the next phase in terms of reframing those thoughts.
1: I, I, I the answer to that question, I think, is simple, but I'm, let me give you let me back it up a little bit. I think one of the great disservices, and I'm a member of this community, so I'm, I'm speaking about my own people. One of the great disservices of the psychological community over the last hundred years is we've told people that if you can just get your thoughts in the right order, then you can be well. You can just think about things and feel things in the right way, in the right in the right configuration. That's mental health, and I reject that. I don't think that's true. I think you act your way, often you live your way, you practice your way into new thinking and your body's reorientation. And we have completely bubble wrapped over and duct taped over our chief um, signaling system, which is our bodies. And so, healing after grief looks like. Um, if your parent dies or if you think about the abuse, healing is not that that thing went away. It happened, man. There's a period at the end of that sentence. Can I have that memory without my heart going 180 beats a minute and me getting that warmth in my stomach? Can I have that memory without my body revving up to try to protect me from that original incident again? So listening to your body, it sounds so cliche and so lame, um, but that's really the magic. Can I can I think about these things without having to re-experiencing these things in the present, right? And when you get there, you're always going to miss your husband who died. You're always going to dreadfully miss your son. But I can think about him without vomiting. I can think about him without my stomach knotting up and me being having to leave a room, right? That that's when I know I'm on the track towards my body's recognizing we're in the present now.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and just a backtrack a small bit when you're talking about grief something else that you wrote about in the book that struck me was grief is a gift Mm -hmm. and grief is often looked upon as something quite negative and something to be almost i've got to get beyond this grief as quick as possible in order to move forward in my life it's something that people want to avoid it's it's uncomfortable it's painful but it's also a gift why is that
1: well, I, th- I think to answer the second part of the question, first, I'll loop back around. We've pathologized discomfort and globally. Any sort of discomfort is we're trying to solve for it, right? right? So your chair doesn't, isn't quite soft enough. We'll, we'll have a new kind of leather. We'll, grow, we'll literally grow a new kind of cow to give you a softer leather for your precious booty cheeks, right? We, are, we have all sorts of, di- oh, you know what's really hard? like just turning your neck and looking around. So we're going to put a, a, a computer screen in the, in the dash of your car now. You don't even have to turn your precious neck. Or, you know, it really stinks going outside for three and a half seconds when it's cold to start your car. So we're going to build it into your cell phone. So all those things are great. They're cool. But we have pathologized discomfort and no greater place have we pathologized discomfort than when it comes to death and when it comes to sadness, and when it comes to grief. And all grief is, is the gap between what I wanted, what I thought was gonna happen and reality, what actually did happen. I wanted my marriage to last forever and she left me. I wanted my mom to live forever and she got cancer. I wanted my kids to be, it's their job to bury me and it happened the other way around this time, right? And so we have to, our body's got natural built-in mechanisms for healing, especially communally with other people and we suck at that too. but we have to walk through the darkness of grief. We have to be able to drop our shoulders and say, I wanted my brother in arms to be with me forever. And he got killed on the battlefield. He's gone. And I got to let my body feel that. And we do not have any training for that. We don't have any mechanisms for that. We just have great cliches that we write on our gym walls. We tattoo onto our bodies and we just say, soak it up and grind it out. And keep crushing. That's all cool, man. But underneath the surface, your body is still trying to solve it, solve it, solve it, solve it, solve it. And it's going to kill you from the inside out. So grief, man. Grief is taking a moment and saying, I loved something and it's gone. I wanted something and it didn't happen. And when you do that, your body then goes, ah, he's driving again. We don't have to sound all the alarms. We don't have to run. The machine we don't have to wake up and dump cortisol and adrenaline into our bodies 24 7 365 to keep the fight or flight going this dude's driving again and he's intentionally stopped the car taking the keys out and he's parked it for a minute because we don't need to be driving right now that's grief and if we will do that and especially if we'll do it with other people it has a magnifying effect on moving us forward and that's when you get to make meaning and find new purpose you hear you know you hear military guys say that after grieving That's when I realized, oh, I'm going to go to special forces or I'm going to go help soldiers with their mental health or I'm like they you find meaning and purpose on the back end of grief. If you don't don't go through it, man, your body will will pay the price. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. There's an avoidance of the reality of the situation, too, for a lot of people, isn't there?
1: All, all, All the time. Absolutely. I talked to a guy on my show the other day. A guy called me on the show and he said, my wife left. A year ago, she moved out and now she's talking divorce and this, and I'm just trying to save my marriage. And I was like, I don't know what kind of friends you have, man. And I'm sorry, but your marriage is over. I'm sorry that nobody's told you this. Um, Her last day was your first day. She was done with this thing when she moved out and he, I mean, he fell apart, but he had, had not let himself grieve reality. My wife left me. Right. And it's just getting to that place where we have to sit down and own it, man. I suddenly look up and I'm 50 pounds overweight. I got to acknowledge that reality. I didn't mean to put my job ahead of my wife and my kids. I haven't slept with my wife in six weeks because I've been running around playing video games. I have to just say, I didn't want this. And here it is. And then you can ask yourself, what am I going to do next? Right. But you got to go through it in the right way. Yeah. Otherwise you just trade it. All addiction is, is all addictions are, whether it's, whether it's, Women, whether it's pornography, whether it's alcohol, whether it's busyness, whatever it is, all addiction is, is going to your alarms, your anxiety alarms, and just duct taping like a, like a pillow around the alarm system to muffle it and quiet it up. Doesn't fix the fact that your house is on fire. It just quiets it a little bit, right? That's all it is, man. And if you don't deal with the alarm, your house is going to burn down around you. You know what I mean? Right around you and your precious drink and your precious drink and your precious drink.
0: Yeah. And again, it sort of circles back to the difficulty of making that change and actually yeah. paying attention to the alarms and understanding that if you don't make a fucking move, yeah, you're in danger. You're you're yeah. gonna die here, you know, whether it be spiritually or physically or mentally or whatever it is, you're gonna you're gonna die. There's gonna be a death here, or there's gonna be a death to the relationship, or it's gonna be death with the friendship or your business, or something's something needs to change, and often Again, this victimhood mentality that is is very real in the world today as well, I think is a, a, a massive has, has become a massive avoidance for a lot of people to make a change as well. It's oh, it's my wife's fault, it's my business partner's fault oh, it's the economy's fault. oh it's the, it's the war in Ukraine and Russia' that's, that's the fault. It's like, well, yes, um, those are factors, but you're responsible for your actions What comes
1: next? Yeah, what comes next?
0: Yeah. yeah and it's down uh, to you
1: yeah.
0: yeah and again the fire alarms are ringing but you're sitting there not making a move and I've been there and I, I went through a process of nearly 10 years after a car accident I was involved in and um, a lady died on the scene with the, and mm-hmm. I was 18 at the time and you talk about replaying situations in your, in your mind this loop and yes keep going back to the car wreck and to the emotions and the feelings around that It was 10 years before I could actually start speaking to someone about it and begin to move forward. Mm. And it's only now that I'm beginning to realize that, yeah, the talking is fine. And, you know, mental health is often associated with mental, like your mind, your brain. But I've ignored the feeling in the body. And I'm, I'm recently starting to understand that, yeah, okay, maybe you've talked it out, maybe you've felt some things, but, you know, from the neck down, I was numb for years there you
1: go yeah man that dude that recognition right there is everything if i could bottle that up and give that to every man on the on the planet the world would change overnight Mm. right i think that's a beautiful sentiment and here's the thing i think we have a bad tendency to moralize that or character or like make it a character issue i like to reframe it this way you ever tried to like fix your car you had you fix your car fix something at your house and all you have is like a flathead screwdriver and a hammer and you get it done, man, but you bang up everything and you scratch it up or you put holes in the drywall, you get the plug working again or whatever's busted. I like to think of this is my dad was a SWAT hostage negotiator. He was an incredible man. He's an awesome guy. He's he's still alive. He's in his seventies. Awesome dude. I didn't learn about how to listen to my body. Right. And so it's a set of tools I don't have. It's a skill set. When I went to the MMA gym for the first time, I didn't know that following a double jab that some that Sonata was going to throw a right hook across the side of my head that was going to plow me up against the wall. I didn't know that was coming. I didn't know that jiu-jitsu guys would step over one way to trick me into moving so they could tap me on the other side. I didn't know any of that. I had to learn a set of skills. And I didn't go home thinking I'm such a loser. I'm an idiot. I went home saying, I learned something new today. I learned something new today. So it's a man staring at a problem and saying, all right, I'm not treating my wife right, or when I come home and my kids start yelling and running around crazy because they're kids, for God's sake, my, test, my chest tightens up and I get angry. I'm going to be curious in that moment. What am I getting angry about? Is it this imaginary picture I have of home? Is it that I think kids who are loud are bad kids, or they're a reflection of me, or do I think my wife's lazy? What am I actually feeling? And usually, it's a continuation of our last meeting we were just at at work, or- we didn't work out or I've eaten like crap for the last three days and my blood sugar is at, at you know, below baseline. So there's a hundred different reasons why, but almost 99% chance it's not my kid's fault, but they're the ones who I yell at when I'm mad, right? So it's learning a new set of skills, feel your body. What's your body trying to tell you? My body's trying to tell me that I don't want to talk about that. Well, that means you got to talk about that. We need to figure out some skills and let you do that, right? Yeah. Very difficult
0: to do on your own though, is it?
1: It's almost a po- it- I contend that the literature would say, in my personal experience, zero, none. There is no such thing as long-term behavior change that happens in isolation. It doesn't exist. Which I think that, that, if I go back to that original thing that that professor told me at Harvard, I think we have men have become so lonely and so isolated, and we have bought into that Western myth that, look, dude, I grew up in Texas. That's where they raise the cows and slaughter them, and they develop the bootstraps we're all supposed to pull ourselves up by, right? Like, that's the, that's the birthplace of that myth. It's not true. You simply cannot do everything. You can't be the loving person that you need to be and the hardworking person and the get your workouts in. You can't do everything. You have to have other people to do life with. And that's me working with elite military folks in the States. That's me working with people who are, have net worths that I will never even be able to come near. That's everybody. I don't care how tough you are, how strong you are, whatever um you gotta have other people to do life with you gotta have other people you can sit down and say this sucks and this happened to me you gotta have other people that you call when something good happens right that you call say hey my kid got the part in the play and they're like what why are you calling me about that like i don't know i'm just excited And he's like oh that's cool you gotta have those people or otherwise your brain will start sounding the alarms we're alone we're alone we're alone we're alone and it gets louder and louder and louder and And (laughs) we find ourselves doing stupid things to try to plug that that plug that alarm up
0: does seem to be a (laughs) epidemic of Loneliness at the moment, especially for men. And something you uh, wrote about in the book as well, which I found very fascinating, and it was a very important part in the book, I feel, uh, because it's, as I said, there is an epidemic of of loneliness, especially for men and for a lot of adult men, especially between the ages of 30 to 40 years of age, it's just very difficult to make new friends, isn't it? It's brutal,
1: man. It's brutal. Yeah.
0: And it's, you know, something that... I, uh, I had to smile now when you, when you, when you uh, talked about it, when you wrote about it was you had, you had friends in your life and you sat down one evening. At, oh, when they,
1: at, I invited at, them over. Yeah, man.
0: At their house. And you just, uh, <laughs> you, uh, you said, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be, I'm, I'm going to ask something now. That's going to be pretty weird. And <laughs> you asked them, uh, can we become official friends or can we officially be friends? Yeah. And I thought, well, that's a, that is a fucking brave move.
1: <laughs> hey, the way I asked it, though, was like, yeah, hey, I need to ask you something super awkward. Yeah. And I'd now come to realize that I think they thought, is he, ask, are, are, is he asking us to swing? Like, is he? are we trying to like, why you doing what we're we doing here? <laughs> um, and one of the dudes was a military veteran. I mean, they're awesome guys. Um, and their wives were there. And my wife was there. But, but yeah, I didn't know another way through it. I just knew the data said, that I am at risk for dying young. I'm at risk for becoming a ball of rage. I'm at risk for making poor decisions financially, um, physiologically, spiritually, psychologically, professionally, if I don't have other people in my life to do my life with. And I didn't know a way forward because I'd lived in the same part of the country my entire life all for 40 years. And then I just packed up and moved halfway across the United States. And so I didn't know the way to do it. And just to be like, hey, and I was just thinking about, like, when I was a kid, like, um, I guess we're going to kiss now. I, can, can we kiss now? I, I didn't know another way forward. And so, yeah, I had some people. I invited one couple over, and I asked them, hey, like, we want to officially ask you all to be our friends. And here's what this means. At 2 a.m., you can call us because we're going to call you. And I want to know when your kids, when good things happen to them. And if they're struggling, I want you to call us, too. And uh, one one buddy, and he's still a close friend. He's like, man, this you made this weird, bro. <laughs> it's like weird. But one other guy um, was just really powerful. This guy's brilliant. He's a veteran, PhD guys. And he, he started crying. And I was like, oh, no, did I make this real weird? And he said something that was, it was a shapeshifter statement. But he said, dude, nobody's ever asked me that before. And I thought, holy smokes, is that where we are? Is that where, you know, is that, was that where we're at? And I think, dude, the reason why, when you're 35, 40, and you get together with a group of guys that you've been friends with You all tell the same high school soccer stories or the same high school football stories or the like. remember the fights we all watched? Because I think that was the last time high school or some some of us college, that was the last time we belonged to something bigger than ourselves. And then we run out into the world and the world says, hey, uh, it's all of us versus you now and you versus all of us. And if you make a sale, it's because that guy failed and it's food off his family's table. And if you make another sale, we're coming for you. And our bodies aren't designed to do that. Our bodies are designed to work in tribes. Like we're all in this together. And and so we're asking our brains and bodies to do things that it wasn't designed to do. And then we find ourselves 40 years old. We have two or three kids that we don't understand or like even, right? We love them. We don't like them because they're annoying. And they want to talk about dragons and like weird noises all the time. And our wives are busy doing their thing. And you just find yourself on an island. And hey, you. Uh, I'm assuming you've experienced this. I'll celebrate my 20th anniversary with my wife in a couple of weeks. There's been years that I'm sharing a bed with a woman that I know loves me that I feel completely and totally alone. I feel all by myself. I've sat at a table with friends and family that love me, and I felt completely and totally alone. So loneliness can also be psychological. It doesn't have to just be proximal. And it's understanding that I have a responsibility to say, hey, here's what's going on in my life. And other people, I'm going to expect them to reciprocate that. Uh, but yeah, we've got a major problem. And the only way forward, dude, is to, as they say in MMA, put your mouthpiece on I mean, put like, bite down on your mouthpiece, man, and just go and swing. And there's, I don't know another way to do it, right? An app's not going to solve it for us. And isolation's killing us all, man. So it's just reaching out to a group of guys. I have a buddy. <laughs> I got a buddy who's a banker in Texas. And every possible stereotype you can imagine, right? He's got two tight of jeans. He's got buckles on. He wears boots everywhere. Same haircut for his entire life. He's, 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 he's the most stable guy now. He's awesome. And he said he was dropping his kids off. Um, I don't know if you have these in Ireland, but uh, Cub Scouts, there was like a Boy Scouts thing. And he was, had an eight-year-old kid and they were leaving Cub Scouts and there was just a couple of dads milling around. And he said he stopped in the parking lot and turned around and went back to those dads. And he goes, Hey, all my friends moved away. Uh, I don't have any friends. Do you guys want to go get a beer? And he said that <laughs> two of the dads were like, oh, thank God you asked me. We'd love that. We would love that. <laughs> and it just takes one person to suck it up and be brave and say, everybody's coming to my house for the fights or everybody bring whatever drinks you got left in your fridge. Come over. We're going to yell and scream and the kids will get over it. Right. But we got to start doing that, man.
0: Yeah. There's several things there that come to mind. It's, uh, it's, for seeing the consequences of an action, you know, that if you didn't ask your, your friends to be, to be your friends, or you didn't go out there and, and create these opportunities in your life for friendships, you would suffer in the long term.
1: and you, and your wife and your kids do too. Yeah. Everybody around you suffer when you're lonely. It's, it's yeah. a, got a radiant blast to it.
0: Mm. But this is something that's pre- prevalent for men more so than women.
1: Yeah, I think some of that's socialized. I think that we're trained, like, you got to solve it. You go figure it out yourself. And asking for any sort of help or need makes us wimps or wusses or whatever word you want to put on. Yeah, it. That- And so um, I, think we're, I think we're socialized that way. I sure was. Being a Texas male, I was just socialized, man. Figure it out yourself, dude. Go do it. If you have yeah. to ask somebody, it's because you, you failed to do it on your own.
0: That was the other thing that came to mind was you need to practice humility.
1: Yeah, dude. Take a knee, man.
0: Yeah that's uh yeah it's quite significant and the do you reflect back on any of those experiences that you had throughout your throughout the course of even writing the book or before it or through your practice and can you reflect on any sort of uh, part of that process that became a catalyst to change in your life I'm, i'm trying to I'm trying to say is like when you were in a bad place or when you're maybe reflecting back on some of the difficulties that you went through in your own life that you can now reflect back and say you know what that was a massive catalyst to change my life and I can look back at that and really thank it for happening is there something that sort of strikes strikes yeah
1: um a a couple of things um and they all circle around what we were just talking about and there's about 60,000 words that got cut out of that book man. that ended up on the cutting room edited out. I talked too much, as you can tell on this, on this interview, it's all good. It's all good. Um, you put me behind a keyboard, man. I can just go for days, but um, a couple of things happened when I wasn't um, I had, I had real bad struggle with anxiety. Right. And I was making money that my family didn't had never made before I grew up with real, with very little, um, I had my big fancy academic degrees. I had a killer job. Um, my wife and I had been struggling with infertility and we finally have, I got a little boy. Um, my wife's doing really well. Um, I was training with a professional MMA team. I wasn't going to fight professionally, but I knew, I knew how to take care of myself. Right. And my dad was a cop growing up. So I always knew how to handle myself. So like, so I have all of the external metrics and inside my body was uh, imploded on me. Right. And um. So part of that, I didn't realize this until I was going through the book, actually, which was kind of one of those moments, especially as a science nerd that I should I didn't see it. I saw it in the literature. I didn't see it in my own life. But one of the stories I talked about in the book was I thought my house was falling apart and I would call out contractors and professionals and random people from work to come look at this and check this out. And this door won't close and the driveway is doing this. And it was that banker I was telling you about. His dad was an architect, was a real famous architect in our community. And um, so he grew up on construction sites and he came out and he looked at it. And I didn't know at the time that my wife had called him and said, hey, I'm worried about John. He's not okay. And I was doing too well in life for that to register. And uh, he, he drove all the way down three hours to come see me in my new town. And he looked at the house and he looked at me and he heard all my spiel about it. He looked at me and said, hey, John, your house is good. And it's strong. I don't ever want to hear this conversation again. This conversation's over. And that was one of the first times I thought, it may be me. And simultaneously, I have a buddy named Slade and a buddy named Randy. And it was one of them is a bioethics professor and one of them's a a, a lawyer. And Slade and I just started working out every morning at five o'clock. I just knew he was going to be there. And he would ask me almost on a regular basis, what's one nice thing you did for your wife this week? Sometimes I would do nice things for my wife on a Sunday night because I knew he was going to ask me Monday morning. Right? But I used to think it was the exercise and the working out, but I think it was the accountability and it was the routine and it was practicing discipline. And here's another word, I practiced friendship. I showed up and another guy showed up and we talked about our kids and we talked about our profession and we talked about legal cases that were going on. And then Randy is just a brilliant uh, mind who had lunch with us, with Slade and I. Every Tuesday at eleven thirty at this little Mexican food restaurant for a year, and it was the first time I'd had routine and showing up, and again practicing what friendship was. And growing up, dude, when you're elementary school or you're in primary school, or what your your life is curated. All your relationships they all stick you on the field and say y'all are playing soccer today, y'all are playing kickball today, and then you get out of, into college and that's the fraternity or that's the sorority or that's the sports team or that's the major. Y'all all do life together. And then you get out into the world, man, you're on your own. And so there was something about practicing showing up and every day and every Monday and every Friday and every Wednesday. And I then looked up and had the courage after a year, I got in my car and went and drove and sat with a buddy who's a medical doctor. And I said, brother, I'm not okay. And that was the first time I'd spoken out loud. And I used to think that was the moment. It was the moment started a year before when I started getting friendships and that was the currency in the bank. That was the concrete and the foundation that gave me the courage and the strength and the bravery to then go sit with somebody and say, I'm not okay. I never would have had the courage to say those words. Um, had I not had friendships that, that uh, gave me the strength to do that. Hmm. And I also understand, like, let me be real clear. Uh, I understand how woo woo and lame and like, all right. Like I know listeners on your show are rolling their eyes out of the back of their head right now. I get it. I totally get it, man. Um, what I'll tell you is I've been with the toughest of the tough. I had dinner with Jocko the other night. I've been with the toughest of the tough. You have to have other people in your life full stop. There is no substitute for it. And it's just it's just reality. And the quicker you can face up with that, um, the quicker your body will start healing.
0: Yeah, there's something quite significant there too, isn't it? I mean, you're not just surrounded with other men, these seem to be. Very strong and resilient men who are also willing to be open, honest, and and again practice humility on their behalf too. You know, there's like you're not you're not just hanging around with, you know, the, the guy who goes to the pub every. every day. <laughs> no,
1: that's people. the other joke, man. Uh, one of my other buddies is uh <laughs> is like an assistant manager at a like an auto parts store, like on the corner. And I was like, man, if I just get in my car and driven to that dude instead of my medical doctor buddy, he would have been like, "Uh, uh, I don't know, man. I got a 30 pack in the truck. You're going to go to the parking lot and drink. We do that, Right. So I love that guy. That's not who I need to go to when I'm having um, when I'm struggling with depression. Right. So, yes, there there's it's important who you hang around with and who you allow into your into your life to trust, man, because that that's the strength of the tether that you're going to repel off the side of the mountain with. Right if those cords aren't strong man they will snap in a in a minute on you.
0: yeah that sort of brings me to the next question is that where do you find these men i mean yes uh friendships are important but if you're someone and of course a lot of the guys i work with are going through a process of self-development or self-growth and i'm often asked the question from from these men in terms of how do i get beyond this the loneliness of mm-hmm. Of this journey, because it can it can be quite a lonely journey when you're yeah through your life when you're moving away from people in your life that no longer serve you who no longer add value to your life and you fall into this void and it's lonely there it's uncomfortable. A lot of men at that point reframe and go back to their friends because it's too difficult. A lot of men can hang in there and move forward, but they still move forward towards emptiness in their life so Where do you find these people? Is it just a matter again of getting yourself out there? choice yourself out there, get involved.
1: So let me let me give you a marriage analogy to answer that question. Um, my grandparents were married, I I think 72 or 73 years. Um the idea 73 years ago of soulmates is absurd. That whole idea is so stupid. What my they got married. And then my granddad got drafted into World War II and then took off. And my grandmother was left with a new baby. And they wrote letters and then they moved back together. And then they had three more kids and they lived in a tiny little house and they figured it out. And they went, they did, they locked arm in arm and breath for breath and lung for lung and just plowed ahead. And what happened after 70 years that when my granddad died, My grandmother told me I can't breathe without him because he had become part of her and she of him. So after being in the trenches together and doing life together, they became soulmates. And then Tom Cruise pops up in the 90s and looks across the room at Renee Zellweger and says, you complete me. And we've tried to reverse engineer this and find our soulmate first and then try to build a marriage on the back end of it. And what you do is you run out of lust and somebody gains 10 pounds or somebody doesn't want to have sex on a Tuesday because they had too many tacos or whatever happens. And you land there and suddenly you're like, Oh, they're not my soulmate anymore. And it all blows up. So the same idea with friends, if you were in combat with somebody, it's going to be very difficult to replace that sort of brotherhood that you were willing to take a bullet from somebody for somebody and then for you understand that if you played on a college sporting team and had like, like the ups and the downs, if you've done life with a group of, of boys and men for 15, 20, 30 years, and now you found yourself in some suburb or in some urban city all alone, you can't go in trying to soulmate first and reverse engineer a life out of that. What you have to do is get off your butt and start going to share experiences with other people. And what will happen is two or three or four or one of them will, will slowly distill up to the top and you'll find yourself calling them and them calling you and y'all getting your kids together and y'all getting your wives together. And that's what it looks like. So I would say, stop trying to look for your soulmate and your buddies. The same as I would tell you someone you're dating, stop, go out there and share experiences. And people often, the complaint I get is, I don't really experiences, then be hospitable and go first. Quit whining, dude. Say I'm going bowling. As lame as that is, who wants to go bowling? We're gonna go make fun of the whole thing. Uh, the other day, somebody invited me. Uh, <laughs> I, it was a Deftone show. It's an old metal show, dude. And I was an old metal kid, and I was like, I haven't been in a mosh pit in 15 years. And I went. And the next morning, it, I had the time of my life. I went the next the next morning. My wife said, If I didn't know who you your character better, you're glowing right now. I would have thought you spent the night with somebody else. She's like, what happened? She's like, and I was like, man, high school and college, John came back. And she was like, any concert at any time you go. And it, I just happened to be wearing this band, Turnstile. It's a, it's, a, it's a hardcore band. out of, I said, great. They're coming on Tuesday. And she's like, go. Spend the money. Go. And dude, we went with another group of friends at the time of our life. And then I see those guys at work. And now we have a shared experience. And one of them got broken ribs in a mosh pit. Now we have some moments to build on top of. And then now we're all going camping in a few months, right? And we're, so that's how it builds. Just say yes and go. Invite people to a show. Go do your thing and bring people along with you. And you're going to get some weirdos, man. And you're going to get some idiots. And you're going to get some guys that are like, oh, this is awkward. Cool. Suck it up. Move on with your life. But just sitting there doing nothing is, is, is you're decaying, right? You're petrifying yourself. Don't do that. You're worth more than that, man. Mm-hmm. Just yeah. go.
0: Deftones. Yeah, I wouldn't have put you, put you down for a Deftones fan, but oh, all day,
1: yeah. all day, man. <laughs> I see. Yeah.
0: I, I went to see Guns and Roses there a couple of nights ago in, in in Dublin. Yeah, really good too. Yeah, so bringing it back, yeah, it's brilliant. And uh, hey, do you have little kids? I've got a four-year-old boy and an eleven-year-old girl. Yeah.
1: Okay, yeah. so I saw when the Guns and Roses did the reunion show. Um, I grew up on a street with. Um, Some other boys, and we were, I mean, just, uh, they were my brothers. And then we got separated, and one of them was in a bad car wreck as a paraplegic. So Guns N' Roses announces their reunion show, and their mother calls me, two of them are brothers, and calls me, and I'm the dean of students at a law school somewhere on the other side of the state. And she says, I don't know if you have time and I know we haven't talked in a while, but I just bought four tickets to the show because I know y'all love those guys when you were growing up, would you fly down and before she finished I was already on the website. I was like, I'll was be there. And listen, we did. <laughs> we sang our lungs out but I about one and a half songs in I was like, man, I got a little daughter I can't sing these songs man, these are great tunes, like the lyrics aren't super, super encouraging for my daughter, but the experience, man, we shared it. And it was beautiful. It was a blast. It was a blast. It was mayhem. It was a blast, but we just said, yes, I said, yes. And did I have the money? Nope. I had to figure that out. Say yes. Say yes. So become more of a yes, man. Kind of. Yeah. I mean, yeah. When it's saying yes to adventures, here's my rule. I am an introvert and um, I would love nothing more than to sit in my yard with my bow and arrow I'd love nothing more than to go out in the woods by my house and shoot guns. I'd love nothing more than to practice jujitsu with one other guy. I'd love nothing more than just to sit and read a book or play with my kids. And I also know that that life of solitude will kill me. And so I've made a couple of rules for myself. One of them is if somebody calls and says, hey, we're all watching the fights tonight. Do you want to come? And my first thought is, dude, I just want to go to bed. I have to go. If somebody invites me to dinner or something and or to go hang out, and my first thought is, I don't want to, I have to go. I make myself go. And not one time have I ever regretted. It. It's like lifting, right? I've never regretted when I'm grumpier in a bad mood, going down to the gym and lifting. I've never regretted that. Like, man, I shouldn't have worked out today. Nobody says that. Um, everybody regrets when they don't. So it's very similar with saying yes, right? Just say yes and go. Man. Yeah, yeah, go for it, yeah. Yeah, massive opportunity there. So
0: yeah, and like, as you reflect back on your On the writing of the book or maybe even before that and your practices and all the rest of it like what has been some of the highlights through that experience for you
1: um man quite honestly the one of the biggest highlights was I had to deal with um I thought I'd healed for some of these stories like the whole books about stories and going back through it I went through some old journals and I called some old buddies to ask them if I was remembering stories correctly and man I went through a pretty low phase through Writing the book because I remembered some stuff that I thought I'd put to bed that I hadn't. I just duct taped over it and moved on, and so there was a healing part of that that was cathartic that I had to work through that was tough, but also it was healthy and good, man. And um, the probably the most beautiful part is like you mentioned before, when we were off air is people all over the world connecting and calling and saying, "Finally, a mental health book that I can understand." And it's not the best mental health book ever by far. It's not the best relationships. There's some. There's some masterpieces out there. Um. But I'm a guy with two doctorates and I like reading nerd stuff. And I realized that most of the things I was saying was talking past that guy who's just a truck driver who wants to be a little bit better dad. Or that single mom who just wants to figure out how to love her kids a little bit better because she's working three jobs and she only has a few minutes. I realized, man, they need a book. They need something they can sit down. It sounds like we're just grabbing a pint across the table and saying... Things are hard right now. How can I help? Right, and that's that's that was the goal. So people reaching out and saying it meant something to them. That's been pretty neat. I didn't expect that, not at this scale.
0: Yeah, well, don't downplay the book because I I thought it was brilliant. And as I mentioned, you're taking a lot of complex scenarios and you're breaking it down into simplistic terms, and people people can actually take action then and make some improvements. I, I love the way at the end of the chapters you've got you've got questions there for people to ask of themselves too, which initiates. The next step forward and and even the title of the book in terms of owning your past to change your future is that a belief within yourself that you need to go back in order to move forward in life
1: I, I mean honestly it's just neuroscience it's just until you let your brain know that you're safe now it will keep defending you as though you're not safe as though the bear is at the front of that cave and it's a prediction machine and it's a threat detection machine that's what it does and so until you let it know there's no threat here it keeps spinning you up and there's a physiological cost to that um you may have heard me say this on other interviews the best way i can describe it is um and i'm not saying my dad my dad's a great guy but let's say your dad is abusive your dad hit you up a little bit or your dad would scream at you or just worse we just ignore you as though you weren't there and you learn as a kid, when you hear those wheels driving up the driveway or you hear the front door open, you need to get real small and you need to hide or go in your room and just shut the door, read your book, mind your business. Um, if you got straight A's, come running out to show them because you, you got a little gold star by your name. Maybe he'll see you this time. So that happens to you and that's your life. And your brain learns that if you want love, this is how you get it. If you are in relationship with somebody, it's best if you're just not around, or if you're in relationship with somebody, it's best if you constantly, all the time, tell them how great you are, or to constantly get their attention, even if it's negative, negative. and then you fast forward 25 years, and you're married, and your wife's wheels of her drive uh, come up the driveway in her car, or she opens the front door, and you immediately, your body remembers the sound, it remembers the signal, and it just backs away a little bit, just a little bit. And she wonders either consciously or unconsciously, he just is moving away or he just goes in his room and shuts the door when I get home. Or he turns his back and acts like he's doing the dishes or he is doing the dishes, he turns his back on me. What's wrong with me? Because this is setting off her story about rejection. And what does she try to do? She tries to get a little bit closer to you which sets your alarms off a little bit louder which is I need to get further away, right? And so now we're in a dance. And then we wake up seven years later with two kids because we thought they were gonna make everything better. And now I text somebody from the office because she laughs at my jokes and for the first time in four or five years I feel a little bit more alive and now I'm going down a road I'm gonna blow up everything right the counter to that is be curious man if your wife drives up and your first thought is or you feel your body start to move forward or to pick up your phone to text somebody or to head out of the room stop and just ask yourself why do I suddenly feel unsafe in my home what is it about our interaction oh my body's trying to keep me safe i'm gonna let myself know i'm gonna practice safety here i'm gonna meet her at the door and hug her i'm gonna do that for 30 days when she walks in i'm gonna be right here i'm gonna hug her i'm gonna tell her i love her i'm gonna tell her i miss her even if she's like what are you doing you weirdo get away from right and in short order your body will learn those wheels mean safety and those wheels mean peace and those wheels mean joy and now you're talking a whole different landscape here, right? And so you got to take care of your body's those things that your body did to protect you. You got to deal with those things or it's going to keep trying to protect you into your new jobs, your new relationships, your new towns, wherever you go, you go with you, man. And so when you go somewhere, take a well person there, not that dude that's dragging all that crap from, from the past. So it's really a neuroscience thing, kind of dumbed down so I could understand it, right?
0: that's yeah, brilliant, man. That's brilliant. I love that. And it's, yeah. Um... It's, it's understanding the pattern that's been following you through all your life and just to there you go. In, interrupt the pattern with making a, <clears throat> making a change.
1: Yes, yes. Just, just just it's the gap between stimulus and response, right? You've heard that a million times. If you can just pause before you act and then just be curious, why am I about to act like this? Why am yeah. I about to call that old girlfriend just because my wife just yelled at me? What is it? Oh, my, my body's trying to protect me from rejection. I just got rejected in my own house by my wife. The way through that is right in the middle of it, is to lean back into my wife and say I'm sorry, or to say, is there something about me? I need to have a hard conversation. I right, I'm going to lean into that. I'm not going to run. From it. Mm.
0: Yeah, just explore, explore the feeling and the thought. Yeah, that's right. As opposed to judging it.
1: Yeah, don't, yeah, don't go to war with yourself, man. All judgment is, yes, yeah, going to war with yourself. Don't, don't. Yeah. Enough people are trying to go to war with you, man. It is you're, you. You don't need yet another person because you know all your secrets, right? You can fight dirty with yourself. Don't do that, man.
0: Yeah. No, this has been brilliant, John. Thanks so much for your insights, your knowledge, your book. Everyone has listened to this podcast, go and grab a book. I will add it in the, I'll add a, add a link to the show notes below. And if they want to reach out to you and see more of your stuff, where is the best place to to get you at?
1: Well, one, I'll say uh thanks for your hospitality. And um, man, there's nothing nothing the most precious thing you got is your time, man. And you you spent some on me. And so I'm grateful for you, dude. Well, likewise. Um, yeah, likewise. And uh I'm still new to the internet. You can follow me at John Deloney on Instagram. Um, and uh you can go to John Deloney.com for the book and yeah products and stuff like that. But
0: I will add the links below and thank you, man. Yes. What's what's happening next for you? You you take are you taking the book with you? Gonna do a, a world tour? <laughs> yeah,
1: we did it. we did a we did uh we, we did some dates here in the States that were just <laughs> man, yeah we were very caught off guard by how many people were showing up and how loud they were in these barns, in these bookstores, man, it was a blast. It was, Brilliant. it was, it was wild stuff. So um, we'll do some more of that in the fall. Um, in a few, and probably an hour or so, my family and I are heading to uh, the sticks, man, out, way out in the rural country here in, in the States. And we're going to get off the grid for three or four days and uh, have some fun, man. So it's cool.
0: Brilliant, man. Brilliant. We'll enjoy that. Well earned. So yes. Thank you so much, John. Till next
1: time. All right. Blessings, brother. Appreciate you. Have a good one.
0: Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Modern Warrior Podcast. If this episode has added value to your life, please share this episode on your social media platforms so that others, too, can gain the insight, information, and inspiration that they need in order to move forward in their lives.
1: For the time being, stay strong and keep fighting the good fight.